Welcome to Digital India, Creating a Connected Nation. Considered to be one of the fastest growing economies, India is in a very unique place globally. Despite the cultural and socio-economic challenges that the country faces, Indian consumers have strongly embraced digitalization. With over 560 million internet subscribers and 354 million smartphone users, Indians are becoming increasingly dependent on digital technologies in their daily lives. With this burst of digitalization, companies from a variety of different industries have vast opportunities for digital adoption. The premise of this podcast is to understand how companies have accepted this digital transformation within India, the unique approaches they are taking to deal with this situation, and their overall impact on their industry and the country. In episode two of Digital India, we are in conversation with Anand Ahuja. As the founder of Bane, an Indian-based contemporary clothing company, and Veg Nonveg, India's first premier sneaker store, a fashion icon and a sneaker enthusiast, Anand has fully immersed himself in the retail fashion industry and proven to be one of the key players. Today, we will discuss his journey in founding these companies, the changes that the retail fashion industry has experienced as a result of digitalization and the current COVID-19 pandemic, and the future of the industry. So after finishing your education at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, you started your own business. So what about retail or fashion really inspired you to have this entrepreneurial spirit to start your own businesses? So, you know, growing, I grew up in, um, around apparel manufacturing. So, uh, you know, as you know, my, my family, my dad and my grandma actually uh, founded an apparel manufacturing company in 1975. And so, you know, I, I was born in 85. And so I grew up seeing them grow this business. So I was always around apparel. And actually more than apparel, if you ask my mom, she always talks about me and, and shoes. You know, I always had this thing. She's also, she loves shoes, obviously not sneakers. She likes sneakers now, but generally just, she likes shoes generally. But even as a kid, I have pictures of me in like three, four years old, um, like showing off my sneakers and and I apparently used to get really cranky. So I've always been in that realm, you know, around sneakers and, and, and clothes. And I can talk about the sneaker thing another time. But the um, the clothing part was, you know, I grew up seeing it and I saw we did all apparel manufacturing and exports. So we did everything for brands outside of India. And I used to always tell my dad, uh, we should, you know, we should uh, make for we should make a brand here. And, uh, you know, this is when I was in middle school and high school and then. And he was like, listen, um, I have no issues with it, but um, that's not my interest, you know? So he's like, if it's your interest, you can work on it, you know? And I was like, okay, cool. So that was always in my mind. He used to always say that. And then I went to, obviously I went to University of Pennsylvania and after grad, and I actually interned a lot at banks, you know, at UPenn, a lot of people go, I wasn't at Wharton undergrad, but, you know, generally I had a lot of friends there. And so banking is a big thing out of UPenn. So, um, I went and worked at uh, HSBC first, and then worked, worked at Deutsche Bank, and and I actually got an offer from Deutsche Bank to go back full time, and I wasn't really excited about it, but I was like, okay, you know, I guess so. And then what happened was senior year and you know second semester, and Macy's was on campus, and I had some friends going to the information session, and um, 
they just convinced me to come along and they're like, what are you doing? Like you're, you already have a job. Just come give us company. All right. So I went and I just loved it. And actually, you know, I used to go and always, um, uh, TA at this leadership conference called national student leadership conference. So I went there as a student when I was in high school and I, I loved it so much. And it had such an impact on me that I used to go back and I used to TA there through college. So when I went to this Macy session, it just reminded me a lot of that, you know, and the reason was because it was a lot about group dynamics and interacting with people. And, um, you know, as in the buying program, you work with planners and you work with stores and marketing and, and brands. And, and that really appealed to me. So actually, my entrance into retail and apparel wasn't even because of apparel. It was because of the type of job it was, which was very dynamic. And as opposed to banking, which is very much like, you know, at your desk and you uh, come out with the reports. So my entrance is actually, even though I grew up around apparel, and of course, my knowledge of it definitely helped me when I was at Macy's and in my interviews, because I was just so fluid with it and understood it. Uh, but actually, my entry into it wasn't because of anything. It was only it was actually because of the type of role. And that's something like that's a piece of advice I always give to people, because a lot of people grow up, you know, some people grow up knowing, OK, I want to get in this field. I didn't know. Um, I used to say this about brands passively, but I didn't actually think of it anything. I actually tell people, I'm like, sometimes you don't know what industry you want to be in, but you know what type of job you want and you can pursue that, you know? And so I knew I, when I saw it, I knew that's the type of job I wanted and that's what got me into it. And so, you know, I worked at Macy's and I went to business school and then I went to uh, my MBA internship. I had an offer with Nike and then I had an offer with Amazon and, um, at Macy's, I worked a lot with Nike. So I worked, I was, you know, in, in men's active. So I worked a lot with Nike and Adidas and the brands. And so uh, business school for me was very much about trying new things. So I decided to go with what I was less comfortable with, which was Amazon. And I could, and I had a choice and I could choose between a couple of different um, product areas, but apparel was one and I chose not to go into apparel and I went to the Kindle team. And, um, and I said, you know what, let me try something. And when I was at Amazon, I really missed working in apparel and only then like, you know, four or five years after after graduating from undergrad, did I realize I was like, okay, I actually do like apparel also as its own industry. And so that's when I sort of reached out to head of apparel at Amazon. And I was like, listen, I'm here for the summer and I'm doing this project with the Kindle, Kindle accessories team, but I would love to do a project with you. And I started planning for this um, private label for Amazon. And I sort of talked about how, how it would happen and, you know, put them in touch with sourcing companies. And, um, you know, when they were like, would you do this full time after finishing? That's when I started thinking, I was like, I would love to do this, but I would love to do it in India. And I've never worked in India. You know, I left when I was 18 and I was 25 or 26. And, you know, and I hadn't been there. And that's when I came back, not with the intention to start Bahane or start anything. But I said, like, you know what, let me get some work experience in India. Um, and then let me see, you know. And so um, that's how it all started. When, and then when I was in India and I saw an emergence of so much young creative energy, whether in design, obviously I was around design because of, of Shahi, our family business. We were hiring so many young designers from NIST, but also in photography and music and art and blogging, you know, it was really, really growing back then in 2012, 11, 12. And that's when I was like, okay, we need to create something for people in India. And that's how Bahane started. So it was very sort of on the side. 
And when I look back at it, it makes sense, but it was definitely not the plan. You know, it was definitely, I was still in a sort of mode. I was like, okay, let me keep learning. And sometime down the line, maybe I'll start a brand. And I started getting ideas that I would want to, but I did not expect to start it, you know, at that time. So like you mentioned about Shahi, what knowledge have you gained from being a part of Shahi, you know, this generational family owned garment company? And how did you apply that knowledge to your own brands? You know, that's something that is something I still like, still learn from. I obviously, you know, I'm, I, I speak to my dad all the time, basically every day, um, even while I'm in London and stuff. But, you know, with, with Shahi, how it started, um, there's so much to learn from, but there's also a lot you have to do differently if you're trying to create a small brand. So Bahane started, like I said, very small and on the side. So it was very much like a startup sort of feeling. But we were in a big company. So, you know, we, it was a little bit difficult to manage because we had all this, like, we had all this infrastructure from Shahi that we could use. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily translate because manufacturing and retail need to appear differently, whether it's tech wise or the way you hire and the type of designers you hire are also different. You know, so it, it is, there's a lot of different. So it's actually, there's no, um, there's nothing set in stone, but it is like a, it is a balancing act, right? You have to look at Shahi, you have to learn from it, but you have to be very thoughtful about what you want to carry over and what you don't. And, you know, like what would happen, for example, is we, Shahi is a six day in India, six days working is, you know, quite common, uh, especially in industry. So we start off a six day, but, um, you know, the type of designers you're hiring, they're coming from retail backgrounds and they're working five days. So you're sitting in an office where everyone's working six days and you're working six days, but they don't, you know, it makes it harder to bring on the right talent. And then you decide to move five days, but then, you know, it's a little bit weird because your small team is interacting still with the Shahi team, right? And they're all the same. They've all classmates. And so you're doing five days and six days. And then, you know, you try and work that out and moving to another office doesn't necessarily make sense because all your infrastructure is here. So something as small as that, became you know became something to try and address and um you know we obviously stayed at five days but uh we did end up moving into our own space but it does i mean it constantly does create some sort of some sort of tension you know um at the same time like when we were creating our back end the shahi it team they're very um resourceful and in retail you need to make your brand look the part and that's not always the case. So there's a lot of stuff that you have to go back and and how you recruit and the type of onboarding and accounts is obviously something that can go. But even Shai's account system is so made for a big company. There's so many sets, you know, processes for a young online first business. You know, Shai doesn't actually even issue corporate cards. So they don't do online payments. You know, everything is made by check. So it, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, luckily my, my dad is very flexible, but there's a lot you have to navigate. And um, I think had I been a little bit more planned about it before starting, or had I been a little bit more, um, yeah, I guess more planned about, okay, these are the different things. What do I want to carry? What do I not? It would have been better. Now with VNV, luckily that was something we were able to do. With VNV, um, you know, and also because I have a co-founder there, Abinit, who has his, him and his wife run a creative agency. And so they are a startup. So we actually naturally took VNV. Um, it, it found its balance a little bit better because it fit in that startup vibe. 
Um, we had some issues with accounting, but you know we were able to move those over. So it is tricky, but there's so much information. You don't want to just throw it all out. You know, you want to. I think the best thing is to like sit and understand the system and plan out what you want to build over, what you don't. Can you be in the same space, or do you need to be in a different space so you can create that difference? You know. Um, so I think going to a different space was a little bit tough at first because we were so used to being in Shahi space, but over time it's it's good, you know. And I guess those are the different things you have to figure out. So, like you mentioned, you have Bane as well as you have Veg Non-Veg. So how mm -hmm. are Bane and Veg Non-Veg different in terms of style mm -hmm. as well as target market? And were your intentions different in creating these brands or setting up these brands? Yeah, you know, like I was saying, so Bane, we actually officially launched in 2012. And VNV launched almost four years later. So, um we wanted to launch VNV much earlier. Uh, Abhinit and I used to talk about it. We started working together with Bhane. So that's how Abhinit and I became friends. And we used to, we, we both love sneakers and we used to talk about it. And in our first Bhane store, we talked about opening like a, making a basement and making that a sneaker, sneaker lounge. But we weren't able to do the basement, so it got put off. But yeah, it was very different. You know, Bhane was um, not necessarily different that they catered to different audiences because, you know, there's we both both brands wanted to focus on a young professional creative audience right uh Bane was to cater to um, obviously in and around apparel but vnv was actually made to be a little bit smaller and more niche right vnv was made to cater to like sneaker enthusiasts and um enthusiasts of for me basketball so that's also part of the name is because um abrit and i are quite different like we we're both obviously from Delhi, but um, I, you know, sort of grew up vegetarian. I was vegan and raw plant-based at the time. And Abhinit is sort of, you know, the nicest guy. And he's, uh, uh, you know, he grew up playing football. I grew up playing basketball. But he, you know, he he's like loves his loves his non-vegetarian kebabs and stuff, you know, like. And so we have this, you know, big difference in that. And also our taste of sneakers is very different. Like I like a lot of new innovation around sneakers because I grew up playing basketball and I'd always want to buy the newest basketball shoe. And he grew up around a lot, like very interested in the, in the cultural side of sneakers, like the music side and, uh, and the art side. And so in all of our differences, sneakers was the, the commonality. And that's why the name veg and non-veg, right? And so actually, and that's also a very Indian thing. All packaged food has a logo, a green dot and a red dot. So our first emails were actually Mr. Veg and Mr. Non-Veg, like there would be two, two characters. But um, so VNV was actually made to cater to a very niche audience of, of sneaker enthusiasts. And it just happened to be that since 2016, that's really grown, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, men being more willing to spend one uh, with uh, there being more acceptance of casual um, you know, dressing in the workplace and, and in, in going out and stuff too. And uh, really those two things have been big factors for sneakers really growing um, and men and women, right? And so the fact that, the fact that, um, you know, like a lot of people and, you know, even for people in tech that aren't necessarily, you know, into fashion, they like wearing the same stuff every day, but they can change up their sneakers. And so that became very easy. So like sneakers really grew, but you know, back in 2016, they really wasn't that big, you know, all these, uh, the resale businesses, they didn't really, they weren't really around. It was only eBay really, you know? 
And so uh, it just happened to grow at a faster rate than Pane, but it was very focused and small. And Pane was supposed to be, you know, it was catering to a larger audience because it's more basics. Um, so yeah, they, they, were, they were founded for a similar audience, but different sections of that audience. And, um, and yeah, you know, with, with Pane, the landscape has been a little bit different where when we launched, none of these uh, existed. Uniqlo wasn't in India, obviously. They just launched Gap, Zara, H&M. None of them were in India. And, um, you know, Bhane was, was made for that. And now we're actually finding that it's so important to be very focused in the story we're trying to tell, especially when you're creating your own product, right? VNV is also selling already made product, Nike, Adidas, et cetera. Uh, Bhane is creating its own product. And so that takes a lot longer. The investment cycles are very different, you know, of um, uh, like a VNV is really sort of a, like a, we try and help our brands communicate what they're trying to do. Bhane is trying to create something from scratch and it's a very different investment cycle. And we see that even with VNV, we're, we're making our own our line of apparel. And it's a very different thinking than actually just getting product and selling it, you know, um, making it available. So that one is buying and one is actually really design focused. So it's very different sort of development cycles, but so they seem similar. Um, Especially because you know we tend to keep them in similar stores, but the way you, the way you have to think about growing them is very different. Yeah, they they seem similar and similar like you know uh, part of the audience, but how you have to like really care for them is very different, you know, and the investment cycle is very different. So how do you think your exposure to like Western culture as well as Eastern culture and fashion? influenced kind of your vision in initially starting Bonnet, but as well as like your vision for the future of these brands? You know, it's actually like both good and bad in the sense that, see the good parts are that you've seen what a mature retail industry looks like being in the West. So that's something that you understand how powerful it is. And obviously being at Amazon, I was like, wow, online can really be this powerful, you know? So Bonnet, and VNV, frankly, VNV started with a, a pop-up, but Bhane started strictly online. And um, the good side is you see that. You, you can have a vision, you can have a foresight for, okay, this is what a mature retail industry looks like, mature brands look like. Where the downside is you can almost expect too much. So from Bhane, we did. Like you expect too much right away. And so you're just like, okay, you know, the, India just doesn't is not there yet. And that's okay. Or, you know, to expect a certain type of aesthetic or to expect a certain type of spending power and brand understanding is just not there yet. And that doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's just what it is. Like, you know, even for when we opened our first Pane store, the ground floor was the store and the first floor in India, as we said, ground first. In the US, it's like first and second, right? So, uh, so ground and second or whatever. But so ground floor and the floor above. The floor above was just a cafe. And it was like we did ice cream, coffee, and pizza, just three things. We want to keep it really like focused and, you know, people could just come and sit and work out of there. And we really wanted it to be like an immersive space. And so for people just didn't necessarily get it. They liked it, but the the top floor was never really that full, you know, or that occupied because people were just like, you know, we can just come and sit. And so it was a little bit too early, you know? And actually when we then launched VNV, um, we took part of that top floor and half of it and made it the VNV wall and the other half was a cafe. Then it became really nice because instead of having six or seven tables, you had three 
and those three were pretty full and it was just like the right balance. So there's a little bit of a learning curve and, and um, the good thing is a vision. The, the bad thing is trying not to force it too much. You know, you want to guide in a way that you think is the right way, but you don't want to force anything. And uh, even the aesthetic and you want to, you want to be right on how you communicate needs to be um, accurate to brand, but you can't necessarily just assume people understand what you've seen in the West. So you have to really balance it. You have to really understand, okay, my market is here in in India, if that's where you want to be, or where, and then to try and really learn from it, not just try and say, this is how it should be, because that's what I've seen. Yeah. So when you initially started Bonnie, it was completely online, right? It was like mm-hmm. an online brand. Mm-hmm. And you stated, yeah. I think, in an interview that you uh, did a while back that you didn't go the traditional route when you first started the business of hiring an advertising or a PR agency, but you brought awareness to the brand through photo shoots of um, quote unquote, real people, real people. Yeah. So what prompted you to take this route and what were some of the risks that you considered when you saw other brands that, you know, did take this traditional route? Yeah. So, you know, part of the good thing about uh, starting so off the cuff was like, you know, there's a there's a strong side to being planned. There's also a strong side to being unplanned. And part of that part of it was that I didn't really consider the risks so much. Now I'll talk about what they were. But the reason that you know Bhane really started out of seeing this emergence of 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 uh, new creative energy in India, you know, from young people, and and a big part of that was blogging, you know. And so the website we made, we wanted to look like a blog. So when you go to the website, it's just photos, right? And you just scroll and you can see photos and there's no homepage, like click men's and women, like none of that. You just open the pages, photos, and then you can filter stuff. So instead of getting there and adding, okay, I want to see men's and you see stuff, you just get there and then you can remove stuff that you don't want to see, you know? So it's deductive. Um, So that was the first thing. We really wanted the website to feel like a blog where you can just go and look at images. And part of that was actually showing how the product would be worn not in a studio and so quote unquote real people. So how it would be worn by people we know, our friends, people in the industry. And so that's why we did the shoot. And actually a big part of it was there was a photographer there's a photographer named Manu. He goes by Whereabout, uh W E A R A B O U T. And so he had this great blog that I love seeing and and he just had um he's quote he's not really a fashion photographer, but he quoted he he shot a lot of people in how they dressed. So he, he captured style and he captured color. And I just loved it. I really liked seeing his, his posts. And he's not really big on Instagram. So, but his blog, and so I asked him if he would do the shoot and he was open to it. But he said on a condition where he would, um, he would you know, suggest a stylist and he would suggest people to bring along because it was very inspired by what he was doing. So he knew different people. And um, we, were, we were like, that's great because we don't know anyone in the industry. And so... It, it worked really well where the first photo shoot, which is probably still our most like, like, you know, quote unquote popular one is, it was, was that. And, um, and then we, you know, that went well. And, but that was a little bit more focused because we had, you know, I think six people and they were, they weren't, um, they did do some modeling work, but they were in industry, right. They were working in the industries. And, um, and so they understood about how to pose and, and how to, you know, even though you're shooting on the street, you still it still has to be appealing. Like if you come and shoot me, like I look really like, you know, uncomfortable. And so in that first shoot went really well. Then we got a little bit 
maybe overconfident, we went to a lot of other people and we said, what if we shot each garment on a different person? So it became like a, you know, and it was actually, it was great in terms of story, but a lot of the photos don't communicate. People can't necessarily, uh, when they see it on the website, it doesn't translate. So it was like, okay, cool. The idea is great. And we understand what you're trying to do. And it's great to sh get the brand out there and interact with people. But when you actually come to the website, you don't really see it on yourself, right? And that's why models do what they do is because they can show it to you in a way that you can actually say, oh, I can picture that on me or I can't. And here you were actually just coming and looking at photos. So it was one step too far. And so then what we did was we added another thing where you could see photos three ways. So you could see it on street shoot, studio shoot, and flat shoot, right? And so it became like you could see it on a person, then you could see it in shot in the studio, and you could see it, see it flat. And that became our balance. But yeah, like you said, we didn't realize that that would be part of the risk. And that was okay. And that's part of, I guess, the learning curve. But I think you can save a lot of effort and energy if you can be a little bit more planned. Like if we could have been, if we had just done a sample shoot and seen it and, and did it ourselves. So you want to find that balance between the two. But um, yeah, we still don't really use um, an agency like that because we're okay to grow slowly, you know? And uh, our thing was really interacting with people that way. And then also knowing that we did a lot of parties because people loved house parties and we love house parties and we missed house parties. And so our store became that, but we used to have like a entity called like House of Bhane. And we did these sort of house parties where we would introduce our stuff but just have people come out and interact and and um and that became that became the way we did it you know uh obviously it, times like this call for something different but yeah that's what that's what it was then so um yeah how do you think you've seen your e-commerce platform really transform as your brand has grown and now that you've actually opened up physical bonnet stores stores yeah um, e-commerce has become, we still don't do like a landing page. So we still, that, um, feeling of the opening to a homepage is, uh, opening to all the images still there. So, you know, it's still something we really love to see our photo shoots are, they're not sort of street shoots anymore. Um, we still, we do it on like, you know, a little bit more traditionally there, but, uh, you know, how we pick the people we want to shoot on is still more focused is still like, you know, carries that element along with it. And we also have a creative director, um, Nimish, who joined about two years ago. So also part of it is that he's able to understand what the communication is and understand that it's not just, it doesn't have to be just communicated through photo shoot, right? So that's one element of it, but also what you do outside of that can make you feel a little bit more like closer to the street or closer to people. And so, you know, part of what you do outside of that is also, it, you know, so we also have in our stores, like we have a little cafe called One Two. And, um, and so that is just keeps us a little bit closer to our, our you know, the people that, that support Bhane. And so, you know, we found it to be a nice balance. And part of it is just, that's a good thing of having like professionals, quote unquote, or, or people that have been in the industry because they understand what you're trying to communicate and say, okay, the photos itself might be too literal a translation of it. Um, and there's other ways to do it as well. So I think it could have been cool to come. There would have been a way to really continue it in, um, in like a street shoot style, but, um, 
yeah, for whatever reason we didn't. Maybe we'll pick it back up someday. Who knows? So shifting gears a little bit and talking more about the digitalization aspect and how that impacts yeah. retail and fashion overall. Yeah. So from when you started Pane in 2012, just in general, what changes have you seen in regards to the Indian fashion scene? And how do you think your brand has specifically adapted to these changes as well as influenced these changes? Um, you know, part of also when we started, a big thing was uh, people, everyone in India, you know, Instagram, it was just starting then as well, you know, or it just started back in like 2010 or 11, right? When we were starting Pane, I remember my first photos on Instagram were also around that time when we were planning. And so the idea was, you know, everyone that was working at Shahi in the design team, they are they were designers. They were seeing what was coming out in the rest of the world, but India didn't get access to it. So a lot of the designers at Shahi were designing it, but they couldn't buy it, you know. And that was like that was unfortunate. That's part of what we wanted to cater to with Bhane. So, you know, the it was starting then, but that's really become the thing. And it, this applies to Bhane and VNV is the fact that. You know, in these last eight years, everything is global, you know, so this and not only everything is global, small and big are are interchangeable almost in the sense that, um, you know, anything a small brand does can be viewed as much as a big, big brand does. That's the one thing. And second thing is anything you do anywhere in the world, anyone in the world can see, you know, and um, so that's really affected there's no lag anymore in terms of transfer of information and of course i'm speaking to maybe you know general overall overall trends right so there's no lag of information anymore you can't just say you know okay i'm in india so i can release something a little bit later a little bit slower than what's releasing in new york or in london or paris or whatever you know you you now there might be you know a higher percentage population of people that follow fashion in Paris as opposed to New Delhi or something. But that doesn't mean that the people that follow it are the people that follow it, you know? And so, and this applies to sneakers as well, right? Like you can't really get away with saying, okay, we're going to launch a sneaker in London. And then two months later, we're going to launch it in India because people in India that really want it, they're probably going to buy it in London or figure out how to buy it in London or get it, or they're going to lose interest, you know? So, and then what I was saying about so small and big is that, you know, a small brand online can look as big as a big brand online in terms of volume. And that's sort of great, right? Because uh, a new startup can make a great website on Shopify overnight. And all of a sudden you're competing with, you know, H&M or Zara or wh whatever it is. You can compete with any brand. And it almost helps to be small. It almost helps to be really niche and really focused and get a really good audience you know and that's part of what we were discussing also earlier is that like instead of instead of focusing on getting a really big audience of people it's it's it serves you much better to just focus on a very small really focused group of people and as a small audience as a small um brand you can do that really well and i always like the example of like stance socks and they started off and it's like just you know making socks and they just did that really well. And they tried, they didn't overexpand too much. I think they tried getting into underwear and underwear. I don't know how that's worked out, but they're still known for socks. And you can do that really well and grow and be really profitable. And maybe that's all you should be, 
And if you really wanted to get into another category, then create another brand. You know, creating brands is not the hard part anymore. I don't know what how that translates to sort of like fashion trends, but those are sort of retail trends that I've seen, you know? So recently, Nimish Shah, you know, the creative director of Bane said um, in an interview he was doing, I think we'll start yeah. to see a lot of soul and sensibility in fashion from now on. There was such mindless consumption of trendy clothes. I think people are going to step back and prioritize well. So to yeah. what extent do you think digitalization in the sense of all these different brands having, you know, these e-commerce platforms, people having very easy accessibility to purchase these items, you know, to what extent do you think that has impacted this mindless consumption of fashion? And what do you think the repercussions have been on the fashion industry in general and specifically in the context of India? Um, you know, this has sort of been a global trend that's happening for a long time, you know, um, and it's not like the, 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 the consumer's fault, right? It's been a long time coming where clothing is getting cheaper and cheaper and people are able to buy more. And, uh, you know, this idea of, um, consumption it becomes so easy and so it's like it's really hard to change something that's you've seen your whole life you know especially for for maybe people 20 and above you know um sort of grown up with it you know and the real change you're seeing is the people like teenagers and below right they're the ones that have grown up now in this world where you know the let's say the last 10 years has been a lot of conversation about um sustainability right and it's been growing a lot and so they're the ones really driving that change you know you talk to people that are 15 16 they're not necessarily really interested in buying new you know it's almost like they're happy to buy repurpose and you're seeing it carry over into you know your age and my age and stuff like you know and um sonam sort of always been into vintage and um and she's always had this like old soul type thing uh, in terms of her taste. And so that's part of it. But, you know, this mindless consumption thing has really been, it's been happening because of first, you know, uh, sourcing from India and China and Bangladesh where it's much cheaper and then makes apparel cheaper and you can move more product. And, you know, it just happened over a long time. So it's not unique to India. It's not unique to anywhere, but it's a global thing, you know, and, um, India and, you know, is as is just growing now and people are just really emerging into getting spending, you know, getting pocket money spent and international brands are there and it's more affordable. So they're going through it, you know. So actually, it's like the consumers will change it, but the ones that are changing it are, are the young ones. But brands do need to sort of learn from that, you know, and um it's kind of tricky when your whole business has been based on creating new, how do you all of a sudden pivot, you know, but it's something to figure out. And the thing is like, you know, our generations, um, people in twenties and thirties, like we're trying to make incremental changes and that's great. Like if you can make incremental changes every day, you'll be in a great place 10 years from now, but we haven't been able to make the big leaps cause we just haven't figured it out yet. But these people, teenagers and below, like, they're the ones that are just growing up with a completely different way of thinking. And that's something that we actually need to learn from a little bit, you know? Um, and, 
yeah, so I, I'm still trying to like figure it out exactly how that, you know, translates to stuff, but you're seeing in sneakers also, you know, people are a lot more okay with, with buying used sneakers and trading and stuff like that, which actually used to be a thing before, but now because sneakers have become so expensive, people are actually okay. Like I'll trade you this for that and, you know, uh, worn pairs. And there's like a whole terminology that happens. Like, you know, uh, dead stock is obviously brand new, but then there's, there's like terminologies for like, you know, close to dead stock. And then there's like, you know, you can do out of a 10 scale and, you know, where it's worn and where it's not, et cetera. So it's like becoming iteration. So it's good to see that. I haven't seen how that converts to apparel yet, especially like ready to wear. Um, but the folk, what we're focusing on in Pane is really about transparency, right? So if we can bring more transparency into the whole cycle, um, that's at least a good step. And we can do that because we see the whole cycle of manufacturing, you know? So we can actually talk about where the cotton was grown and then where it was woven and where it was cut and stitched and washed and packed and shipped, you know? We can show that. So that's part of what we're doing, you know? And um, yeah, so it's one step, but I haven't really figured it out yet. It's something to think about all the time, you know? I mean, obviously, like incremental changes, like there's no bottles that we use at home anymore. Like, you know, you use flasks and small changes like that. But now I can't even look at plastic bottles. And a year ago probably was when we started making that change really drastically, you know? So uh, I, I'm not even used to seeing that anymore. So, you know, these small steps make it, they add up, especially if you're really looking all the time. So that's what I'm focusing on. But I think there's a lot we can learn from um, like, you know, school, school age kids. So kind of like you mentioned about that, you know, sustainability and these young consumers making these, you know, changes and bringing about the conversations about the importance of these topics within apparel. One of the most significant macroeconomic trends that's been identified in the past decade is this concept of being woke, right? Being really aware yeah. and of what's going on in the world, being politically correct. And this is ranging from environmental sustainability to improving inclusivity, which has been a really big conversation for fashion mm -hmm. brands. Yeah. And we've seen young consumers like millennials and Gen Zers really, you know, being vocal about their beliefs and aligning themselves with brands that voice these beliefs also. So why, like you mentioned, why was it important for Bane to promote sustainability as part of its narrative? And do you think it's important for a clothing brand in general to align itself with some sort of social cause or movement? Yeah, I think, look, everyone um, needs to, like, you know, for brands generally, right? Not just apparel, but brands generally. Uh, and when we started Bane, there's a lot I used to think about, like, we, do, do we really need more clothes? You know, do we, we don't, you know? And, um, and then I realized actually, it's like the same thing about film. If, you know, if you talk about it, like we don't need more films, we watch films uh, because we enjoy them. And I would hate if there were no new films, the same way I would hate if there were no new clothes, right? No new brands. Cause actually what a brand is, is speaking to a very like basic, characteristic of humans, right? We're social creatures uh, by nature. We, and some people are introverted, still a social, you know, characteristic and extroverted. So you know, we're, we, our whole lives are defined by how we interact with each other, you know, and that's the most basic part of, of human life. And so brands just speak to that. We buy brands because we relate to them, right? And uh, we don't buy brands for other reasons. I mean, 
yes, there's a thing of there are certain necessity things, right? And you might go for a price competitor. I don't understand that that segment as much, so I don't speak to that. But you know, the idea is that you want to create something that people is a is a community, right? And you and people are coming around that. So Bane is that, and VNV is that, and they're different. You know, even though it's a similar age group, for example. So when it comes to social causes, like if you think the world is fine as it is and you're continuing, you'll find a group of people that think that way. It's fine. I don't, right? So I I do see the need, like I see the consumption and I see, um, you know, I obviously also do contribute to it. So it's like trying to understand and trying to understand how we can control it and contribute to it is part of our journey. And that's part of what we share at Bhane because I need a community of people that I can discuss that with, right? And share that journey with. And so people that relate to me on that or relate to relate to Bhane on that, and they'll form part of that conversation, right? So, you know, the brand doesn't need to be perfect, um, but you just need to communicate what's really genuine to you. And, um, you know, and so VNV, like Bhane speaks a little bit more about transparency but VNV not, doesn't like VNV doesn't have that visibility through the process chain to talk about where is Nike making his shoes or where is Adidas making his shoes. We don't have that. But for VNV, what really speaks to us, if you look at our team, is diversity. And so that's something that we really value. We've seen how shoes connect people all across India. Right. And you look at our team and you look at and that's part of our journey at VNV. So like, you know, fine, I'm part of these two brands, so I can speak to two different things. but you know, part of it is just that even when you look at during the lockdown in India, you know, our uh, Deepika, who's our CEO and, and Devika, who runs sort of our, um, our like the business side and, and, and finance side, like they're huge animal enthusiasts, right? And so is Sonam and so is her, like uh, Sonam's uh, cousin sister. And so for them, you know, a big part of it was how do we support, um, you know, animals animal shelters and animals in this time, because now all of a sudden people aren't going outside and India it was a proper lockdown, right? So they weren't getting food. And so a big part of what we use our funds uh, in lockdown through Bhane was that. Now that's not the same as VNV. So, you know, each, and that's what's so interesting about, about brand is like you're, you have your own story and people either relate to it or don't. And, uh, you know, relating to what I was saying earlier, one of the best things I either read or heard was, I think I heard it and I was on a, a Tim Ferriss podcast maybe, but it was like the extremes inform the means, you know, people always say like, you know, who's your, who's your average customer? And the truth is that average customer doesn't exist. You know, like when you're doing that, you're taking a bunch of different customers and you're taking different characteristics. Actually you have these extreme customers and you can't like dilute them into one customer. And actually what you want your brand to do is cater to them. And as long as you cater to them, the mean everyone in the middle will be catered to as well, right? And so, uh, even even at business school, like I had this one professor. The story really resonates with me. I remember it. he he used to brew his own beer, right? Uh, I don't drink, so I don't really. The point is not about the beer itself, but the point is that he always talks about like the most liked beer. He had to discontinue. He's like, I had this beer that everyone liked but I had to discontinue it. And he's like, the reason was because no one loved it. No one would seek it out, you know? So if it was there, they would have it, but they wouldn't seek it out. And so, you know, when 
for example, when Amazon included lowest ratings in their you know, reviews, actually their conversions went up significantly. Is because when people know the worst part about a product, one, they feel more comfortable because they, they, they trust you more. Secondly, some people actually want that feature. So he's like, he had this one beer that was so bitter that the review would be like, your beer is so bitter, it tastes like you know rat urine. And then someone's like, I love bitter beer. And they started buying that beer, right? So actually what you want your brand is to be a little bit polarizing, you know, um, in a sense of, okay, cool. This is what our brand genuinely stands for. And if part of sustainability is part of what you stand for and your team stands for, great. If it's not, I mean, I think you'll be in the minority now and in, or if not now in the near future, but, you know, it is important for, us to think how to contribute instead of just consume, you know, um, and that's, you know, that's a worldwide phenomenon and a trend that needs to be addressed. Another, another part of this alignment with social causes is that we've seen brands, be it just fashion brands or just, you know, brands in general, aligning themselves with, you know, these social movements that we've been seeing recently to create, yeah. you know, sociocultural change within our society. For example, we've seen so many brands like Nike, Adidas, Amazon even um, aligning themselves with the Black Lives Matter movement. And yeah. with the recent explosion that happened in Lebanon, we've seen a really big brand like Zuhair Murad, right? He's brought yeah. together so many different celebrities yeah. to create awareness and support for, um, you know, the blast that happened. So yeah. how much influence do you think brands have, be it big or small, in this digital age in creating significant sociocultural changes? I mean, huge, it's, and not just brands, it's like any group of people, right? A brand is just a group of people. So even like, for example, I'm a big basketball fan, you know, like NBA, you know, and it's, um, it's a group of people. It's also a brand, but it's a group of people. And it's like, you know, the, the NBA players walked out, you know, earlier this week and, uh, you know, there were three days suspension basically. And they came back because the league realized that, the league has been making a lot of statements about, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter. It's on the courts. It's on the. It, they have official warm-up T-shirts that have it. But it wasn't just about saying it. It's also about what else are you doing. And I'm sure the league is doing much, doing a lot. But the players were like, "Listen, we're here, um, and of course, you know, we're earning money and stuff. But we can be doing more. You know, uh, these things are still happening. What are we going to do?" And they came to like, you know, three really significant contributions they can do. One of which is going to be all the arenas are going to be voting stations, you know, and that's huge. And of course, LeBron is like, you know, a key athlete in the NBA right now. And one of his big initiatives is, is more than a vote. So it's like, whether it's brands, whether it's any group of people, you're stronger together, right? You have more of a voice together. And so you have to leverage that, you know? And um, like you said, the, the most, like the most basic part of brands is how you interact with people. And, we are no longer buying stuff just because generally just because of price. Even when you're buying just because of price, you generally are going to one specific brand more than another, right? So um, you're buying it because, you know, you you believe in what they believe in. So Amazon, for example, is like, it's not even necessarily the cheapest place to buy stuff anymore. A lot of times people pay a premium to get Amazon Prime, you know, the tick mark, because, you know, they... The returns are easy on Amazon. Amazon always prides itself by customer support. And I always tell people, Amazon's not a retailer. Like it's a tech company and their focus is customer support. 
And if a, if their customers started telling them, stop selling stuff and only do cloud computing, they would stop. They don't care about the product. They want to make the customers happy. And it comes through, like it comes through when I was working there, it comes through from when you try and contact the team. So everyone has their own stuff. And you know, some, and Amazon maybe is, you know, less proactive or less maybe vocal about certain initiatives, but they do it to the level they are. And, you know, and some people are okay with it. Some people are not, you know, um, NBA maybe has a little bit more of a responsibility to be more vocal about it. Everyone has to find their cadence. Everyone has to find their position. Uh, but it is important for everyone to have a position, you know, especially if you want brand, if you want people to associate with you over time, you know, I, I do from my experience, like people will lose interest if you're just sort of just there without saying anything, you know? Yeah. And I think social media has been like a really big factor too, right? Just because people yeah. now feel that they can hold brands, people who are running these brands accountable for the fact of yeah. you're not taking this position. And so yeah. social media has had that impact, but it's also impacted just the influence that a brand can have in general and the business that it gets. So in yeah. India specifically, there's over 294 million social media users. And mm -hmm. it's one of the main ways that people consume a variety of content. And over the past few years, through social media marketing, social media has proven to be one of the biggest influences on fashion. So, mm -hmm. so in what ways do you think digitalization, specifically social media, has made fashion more accessible to the middle and lower middle classes in India in a way that it wasn't before. Because I think yeah. it was, um, you know, for the middle and lower middle classes, fashion or garments or like clothing in general, wasn't something about yeah. self-expression necessarily, right? It was, I need clothes. Yeah. So what can I get for the most, that gives me the most of my money that lasts the longest time. And, you know, it makes the most, it's the most practical. So how do you think that's changed? Well, you, you know, in a way it, it maybe you could even argue it hasn't much because what would happen before in India was it was called like um, it was very unfragmented or it was very fragmented retail market as very uh, informal retail market. So everyone would go to a local shop and either buy or get stuff made. So college students would go to local shops and buy jeans and more rural, you know, you would go and get your shirts made, tailored and women would buy the fabrics and get the saris made. But if you think about how people, women probably bought the saris, they probably had certain vendors they would go to. And that vendor, you would go in and you would like the person and they would, you know, um, understand you. They'd, they'd call you when something is new or something you might like. They got a new fabric. They keep it aside for you. Same stuff happens in the best retail shops, right? Like you, you go in and you like a certain store um, or you go online and you like the certain way of the website and certain experience of checking out. And sometimes you buy despite you liking it because you really like the product. Um, but hopefully, you know, that improves over time. And if you keep buying from a brand that you don't like the experience of the checkout, whether it's in store or online, you will sort of stay away from it, you know, even if you're very compelled by the product. So in a way, what you see is that now what happens is which, with digitization um, and retail brands coming to India and online distribution, People in, you know, in more rural cities in, in India can get access to, quote unquote, on-trend items, you know, as what you see in the rest of the world at prices that are available and shipped to them, you know. And so we were talking a little bit about, you know, retail-wise how, uh, you know, in a way it hasn't changed that people will still 
go for experience, you know, and go to people that, um, or go to brands. And that used to be <clears throat> fragmented and informal. So like mom and pop shops, and now it's become formal, but still the brands that best replicate like a tailored experience are the brands that people will want to go to. Right. So in a way it hasn't changed if for retail, but in a way for fashion, like, <clears throat> because everything is so visible, people in you know, the smallest of cities see what's happening. And now because everyone delivers and the, the delivery networks are so wide, people have access to buying anything they want. Um, that's on trend with, you know, globally, but <clears throat> how that's changed for like fashion trends, I'm not really sure, but you know, generally, I guess people have more visibility and they're buying more on trend. That's definitely the case, but the trends are so different. Like, you know, there's going to be micro trends within India, um, you know, that uh, people have to speak to and the brands that speak to that the best will pr obviously perform the best. You know, there's uh, one thing is seeing global trends, but one thing is also seeing like you know, what's a local trend in India and Bollywood or in other pop culture and what brands really sort of capture that the best, you know? So digitization definitely brings more visibility, but the most basic parts of shopping will still be the same, which is that people want, at least that's the way we see it, is that people want to go to brands that understand them, you know, and that they relate to. So that that's like a very basic part of how we act. And so, you know, in a sense, like people always say, you know, what's a new trend and you can find, but I think a lot of those on the surface, the deep stuff is still this, that you have to connect with people, you know? Um, and that's, that's how we, that's how we, you know, we run as well, I guess. Yeah. So another trend that, you know, we've seen implemented is that low supply, high demand, right? And one yeah. very successful example of this is Supreme. So brands yeah. implement the strategy and this allows them to create this extreme hype around any of the products that they're releasing and sell those products at a premium price. So yeah. how popular was this strategy previous to e-commerce specifically in, in India? Mm -hmm. And how do you think digitalization has really allowed for this strategy to flourish? Um, I don't think e-commerce, or at least I haven't, I never even thought that e-commerce might have changed that strategy brands that choose to have that you know low supply creating high demand that's like a it's a very economics thing right so that's like a very basic economics understanding is like where demand meets supply and but uh you know you can sort of maximize your output there but you know what brands like i guess supreme but also you see nike and you see sneaker brands do it right so you artificially yeah you artificially um keep supply lower, not artificially, but also just because, you know, you want to create, keep energy high rather. So you want there to be more demand than is met. And there is some benefits that which keeps people interested and intrigued. And, you know, like you don't necessarily want, so you're leaving money on the table to keep people excited and, and to create sort of tiers of customers in a way. Right. And so I don't know if digitization has, necessarily fed into that or taken away from it except for the fact that you know now more people have access to buying so before what would happen is you know you would have to wait in line you know outside nike or adidas or you know converse or asics or whatever the brands are you'd have to wait outside in line now you can go online and buy if they make it available online and people use bots right so 
these bots that can buy stuff and that sort of has artificially changed it. And then there's more of a, what used to be a little bit more informal earlier where like, you know, you go to eBay to find stuff that you couldn't buy that came out that sold out. Now there's a lot more platforms to buy it. Right. So in a way it's like what happened with tickets as well for concerts and, and stuff is like, you know, tickets would never, not never really be that expensive, but people would buy them and then resell them, especially that's what Ticketmaster is, right? It's a formal reselling platform. And now you actually, the, the, the artificially low price of tickets is now meeting where demand is and it's changing with demand. And the reason that ticket price used to be so low was because they wanted young people to buy tickets and go into the arenas and then shop other stuff. Like you buy your food and you buy your merchandise and that's where they make the money. So now tickets are expensive itself. It sort of takes away from it. But the same thing was there with sneakers. Like the brands weren't necessarily trying to make sneakers so expensive because they wanted people to be able to buy it. And, you know, and that, and then, you know, part of the reselling culture was, you know, not necessarily planned, but it was part of the process where someone would buy it, that someone else would value it more and you'd buy it off that person, right? And you'd find this thing and it kept people interested and it kept the energy alive. So, you know, I don't necessarily even think Supreme artificially lowered their supply. Supreme was, you know, is basically these these people that were into skating and, you know, they just, they have a great eye for design, especially graphic design. And they made product and other people that were like them bought the product. And uh, skating was seen as, increasingly so seen as something really cool and so more people wanted it but the people that ran the shops were skaters and they weren't really interested in selling they just needed to make some money so they could keep skating so you go into the shops and you see like there's a sort of like standoffish attitude which has become quite iconic but i don't even like maybe i don't give enough credit per se but i just think they were really genuine and that's why it worked is because you know the it was made by skaters for skaters and it was very apparently so Right? They stuck to that over so long and it just grew and grew and everything they did was around it. Right. So they, yeah, they made low, they made fewer items, but it was because, you know, so the clothing brand was just a means to their skating. Right. And so I, I always felt that that was a big part of their brand for until they got acquired last year. Like, and I, I'm sure it's still a part of it, but you know, it, it was just that it was made for these people by these people and people wanted to be a part of that culture. And they didn't, they understood the extreme customer, what we were talking about. And then people in the middle, they, they sort of, you know, they bought into the parts that they wanted to, and they didn't other parts. And that was cool. And the product was great. Right. So, and it's not even necessarily the quality of the product, which is great because they generally would buy blanks and print graphics, but their graphics were great. And that's what made it so good. And yeah, the quality did end up being good because they ended up making money and stuff like that. But that wasn't the basis of it. People bought it because they believed in the brand. So, you know, that you can, if you come out with bad product and you lower the supply, no one's going to buy it, right? So supply and demand is really the second part of having good product. And then you can decide, okay, cool. And there's probably a science to that. And, and sneaker brands you know, generally do that well. Like, okay, these are sort of quote unquote general releases. These are more energy releases and these go to certain doors and and you know the reason they do it is not necessarily like oh this is just like you know they're trying to make money the reason they do it is because they're trying to pay tribute to very loyal customers a genuine customer that will go out of their way to get certain product and so 
when someone sees a shoe that I'm wearing or I see a shoe that someone's wearing, they'll understand how I got it or where I got it or what I had to do to get it. And that was the sort of basic thing around sneakers. Like, okay, if I'm wearing a certain Kobe shoe that only released in basketball shops, they know that I genuinely play basketball and I, and I genuinely know those shops. Right. And you see a lot with like skater, skater dunks right now is like a lot of these shops, these shoes only released in the skate shops. And um, that's part of the strategy. And that, artificially increases the price and they that means the the quantity is lower but it sort of goes hand in hand they do it to really cater to that genuine customer now you know other people want to be part of that part of that so they go and buy it and the price goes high but you know there's like two parts of it i think it's it, there's strategy involved but it it there's a lot of um you know that's part of what's fun right you're trying to cater to different consumers and if everyone could have access to all the product all the time no one feels special. Like the basketball players that have certain shoes don't feel as special. The skaters don't feel as special, you know? And um, part of doing something really focused is that, right? So for a brand, the more distribution you have, the less control you have. So, uh, you know, for a brand to say, okay, cool, like this shoe is really important to us and we want to control how its story is told really well. Then we're, and the only people that can tell the story are these skate shops and we're only going to give skate shops. And so that lowers the, the supply and that increases the price and the hype, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's just sort of what's fun about it. It's like, you're having fun with retail, you know, not all shoes should be available everywhere. That's, you know, that's part of what's fun about it. So kind of going, talking more about the future of the retail and fashion industry, right? We're in an age where online shopping has become the new norm, especially yeah. because of COVID-19, the lockdown that's happened. And we've seen large retailers such as JCPenney and brands like J. Crew, you know, that have been around for decades, closing store locations permanently mm-hmm. and filing for bankruptcy. So as technology evolves and manufacturing becomes more efficient, shipping becomes faster, where do you see offline retail in terms of physical stores going? Like, do you think there will be a space for offline retail going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, it, it goes back to that same thing and sort of, uh, speaking to what I was saying about like not just looking at the waves on top, but really the base of it is that retail is about interaction. And so offline retail will absolutely continue. It just needs to be what you need to understand what it's there for, right? And what offline retail is there for, um, stores are there for, is for, to interact with people. And so the metrics around the effectiveness of a store will become more blurred and will need to change. So you can't go to strictly sales per square foot, which used to be sort of the, the, the go-to, you know, a method of understanding a store, but you have to really understand, okay, cool. Like, is this communicating more? It's almost like a marketing expense, you know? And luckily Bhane started off that way. We started online and we opened a store because, you know, we realized the value of interaction of physical interaction and people coming in to see product, but we never opened a store. We don't even look at sales per square foot. You know, we, we look at how much our store does in sales and use that to see how it's changing year on year and month on month and week on week. But that's just a general guideline. Like that's not what we use to evaluate the effectiveness of a store. You know, at some level you want to see, okay, if a store is you know, costing you crazy and no one's coming there, um, then that's one thing, you know? And um, so you see foot traffic, 
But if you have a crazy store and no one's coming there, but you do a, a way of measuring and you see a lot of people coming there actually discovering the brand and going to buy online later, like, you know, you can do stuff like, let's say you open a store in Soho, right? In New York and you do, and anyone that comes into the store gets notified that, you know, go to bhani.com slash Soho and you'll get access to 10% off or something. And you see a lot of people coming there. Or you just say, go to bhani.com slash Soho and see exclusive product. And you see a lot of people going there and buying for the first time. Then you know the store is working, but they're just buying online instead of in store. So there's things you can do, but you'll never have a full measure of how effective a store is. And you have to be okay with that. Um, or then don't have stores, right? So stores are made for more, um, more meaningful interactions. That's sort of the way of them now. And what you'll probably see is fewer stores, but more meaningful stores. So, you know, maybe the smaller ones will, that are on the sort of fringe will disappear and you'll see some of the more bigger impact stores, you know? And that's what we've always done with Bahani and VNV. We've tried to add bigger stores, more flagship focused that people will come to and you will have more things to do there than just come quickly, enter shop and leave, you know? So kind of on that point, right, where you're talking about it's not just come there, shop and leave. It's mm -hmm. it's kind of an experience, right? And I think yeah. that's what we've kind of seen happening with a lot of stores, even with Nike, with the way that, you know, when you come into the store, it's an experience. It's not just for sitting down, looking at shoes yeah. and leaving. Like what type of experiences do you think shops or brands or like actual physical stores should follow to attract people to come into the store? Like something that's really common is having some sort of food shop yeah. in the store, right? Yeah. Offering some sort of food to be able to sit and talk with other people. So what kind of trends do you see in terms of experiences that can be included into the store to attract more people? You know, it's different for everyone. Like, like you said, some sort of food is good because you can always meet over coffee. Coffee is always the big one, right? You always meet over coffee or tea and it's such a like thing people say as well. Um, but you have to see where you're opening. Like, you know, we were looking at a store in Soho for Bhane a couple of years ago. And we weren't going to open ice cream or, or coffee or that because there's so many places in Soho. So um, we had, you know, other con other things we were thinking of. And you have to see sort of what the neighborhood is. What does it need that fits in what you're trying to do with your brand, right? So, you know, we wanted to actually partner with other Indian brands um, and have space for them to showcase their product, right? So that was going to be more than, so one part would be Bahane, one part would be this, where we're sort of highlighting other brands, right? So you're coming in for a few different things. Um, it doesn't have to be food. It can, it can be different things like Macy's and, you know, Macy's as traditional retailer as it is, like some of the best foot traffic and, uh, we would see at the New York Herald Square store was, you know, during the spring, the flowers and the VM, right? VM is huge and it's entertainment, you know? So people are coming in because, you know, VM, they're not necessarily coming in, but the flower section we would have, like the whole store, one part of it would be decorated with flowers. People would come in for that, you know? And, um, and that's another thing. So you have to figure out what's on brand for you, whether that means uh, interaction with, you know, people come into VNV because, we have a great team, you know, that's uh, that's in store. And also a lot of our team sits in our deli store. So they work out of there. So you're interacting with our people and you can ask questions about different products and different sneakers. And that's sometimes the best thing you can do is actually just 
give people access to your people so they can ask questions about your brand and talk about whatever it is that they they find in common, you know? And um, so, you know, each person is different. I mean, like, you know, Nike would do running clubs. This is, they've done for a long time, right? So it's not a new concept necessarily, but you come and meet at the store and you go for a run. You know, uh, Adidas in their London store has like a whole sneaker cleaning area. And, you know, uh, that becomes something else you go in for. So, you know, every brand has to find something. There's so much you can offer and you don't have to necessarily do it on your own. You can partner with other people to bring that to you, you know? So um, you have to really see what, and it might change region to region, store to store. It might not be the same throughout, you know, but you have to see what people need that fits in with your brand that you can offer, you know? So with this COVID-19 pandemic and the shutdown, what lessons have you taken away in terms of how to run your business and what takeaways do you think businesses within the retail industry should learn? You know, I read early in the lockdown, I read like a Bain report. I think my brother sent it to me and it was just, it said one thing which, which really had an impact, which uh, was, you know, a lot of the trends that you saw before pre COVID have been um, like pushed forward during COVID. Right. And so part of that is online shopping, um, you know, maybe work from home was a growing trend, uh, you know, remote working and definitely video conferencing was part of it. So those trends that you saw happening before have been expedited with COVID. And that literally is probably the most impactful blanket statement you can see across industries. Right. And and for stores that, you know, retail specific stores that were you know, very brick and mortar heavy that we're working on cutting down, got caught a little bit, you know, um, maybe in this time where uh, some of the underperforming stores that are less impactful are really suffering, you know, and um, if you were a retailer that were maybe quicker on it and you had fewer, you already started cutting stores, you had fewer stores, you might be okay because people are still, especially post, you have fewer stores to manage, first of all. So big thing for retail was, especially brick and mortar was, you know, renegotiating your your rent, you know. Some people had, uh, you know, uh, force majeure clauses. India was a mandatory lockdown. So that's pretty straightforward in the sense that, like, this is a government mandate to, to not have be open, right? Whereas in the U.S., that wasn't necessarily the case. So, you know, it's sort of a blurred line. But U.S. obviously also has a furlough program. So that's a little bit different. But, you know, if you're paying rent and you can't be open, it's a little bit tough. So it's very specific to in to stores, you know, like if you have good relationships with your landlords and you're able to manage it, um, then that's that'll be much easier for you. Uh, but if you don't, you got stuck, it's going to be much tougher, right? And so the biggest, um, I guess the biggest takeaway is like when you're a company is the importance of when you have a vision for how it's, how stuff is changing don't put it off you know and so as a retailer it goes back to your earlier question about sustainability like that's something that is you know it's definitely been progressed somewhat in the pandemic in a way it almost hasn't because you know there's been a lot of sort of uh, people being hesitant to use like to reuse stuff so people going back actually to like reuse disposable cups and obviously disposable masks, you know, is, is another part of it and stuff. And that's a little bit unfortunate because I, I think that people have gone back to maybe using like small plastic bottles instead of, you know, whatever, instead of 
coolers or whatever it is, you know. So that would be something. But in terms of, you know, people shopping, people are definitely shopping less, you know. And so that means that you're repurposing and, and what does that mean for retail? But the biggest thing is the trends that were there before have been expedited and you have to be ready for that, you know, and as a business, you have to be ready and you have to be constantly looking and understanding how can we get better and what's, what's changing with the consumers and, um, you know, how can we cater to that better? So, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been, it's been really interesting, you know, even in manufacturing side, what you've seen is brands have been slowly moving towards fewer and fewer partners, right? Before like Uniqlo, for example, has, you know, maybe one tenth the number of partners that Gap has, for you know, and so, but Gap has also been moving slowly towards working more meaningfully with fewer partners. And so in this pandemic, you've seen that, like, you know, uh, brands had to cancel some orders and, you know, partners that they're doing more business with, it was easier to negotiate because you're more understanding of each other, right? To say, okay, cool, listen, we have to cut some stuff, stuff that you haven't started making yet. Let's cancel that, you know? But maybe, for example, you know, that amount that will credit, will, will give you this order, just we'll do it later. You know, you can have these sort of substantial, meaningful negotiations and discussions with meaningful partners as opposed to someone that's just doing some small business, you know, and, you know, and for manufacturers as well, like to work with fewer retailers because now you can actually go and say like, listen, like this is really tough for us if you just cancel these and you're, you're a bigger part of the business and they understand better, right? So that was a trend that was happening over five, seven, 10 years. And if you had started making that change, you'd be better off as if people that had not been making that change, you know? And you'll see people coming out of this, uh, out of COVID um, with fewer partners and more meaningful relationships. And, um, and that's part of it, you know? So. Yeah, I don't know what the takeaway or the learning is from that, except like sort of being present and being aware of how the world is changing and how you can better your your performance as a company. But that's definitely the change. So thank you, Anand, for taking yeah. the time to do this and sharing your expertise on on this topic. Thank you. No, not expertise. It's just like, you know, it's just like it's it's. So it's so simple in the concept, but so sophisticated in the execution, the idea that like literally everything we do is about how we interact with each other. So whether it's retail, whether it's anything, it's that. And, you know, like COVID has probably taught us that, you know, for some people they really valued um, if, you know, if you've been fortunate to value time, being comfortable with your family, uh, people that have been away from family, you probably realize how tough that is, you know. Um, for uh, people have, you know, understood, okay, um, importance of home, you know, and, 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 and what that is, or maybe spending time talking to certain people. So like, you know, really like that's what it's, and about, you know, how important, how much we value interacting with others, you know? And um, yeah, so it's like, that's probably the biggest, probably the biggest learning, you know? And um so it's not really expertise. It's something, a journey we're all going through, but I'm happy to share notes and thanks for being patient. And I know that, you know, we, we've been trying to speak for a while, but there was so much change happening. I didn't really know how to capture all my thoughts and still there is, you know, but at least at some point we can at least share notes. And so I was happy to do that today with you. Yeah, thank you.